two fascinating uh, incidences there. Two fascinating incidences, and they're the only two references or two extended texts about Mary during the adult ministry of Jesus between his, his birth, Mary is obviously present there, and his death, Mary was present there too. We'll come to that next week. But in the adult ministry of Jesus, there's only two sections of the Gospels where you can draw uh, Mary's uh, involvement with the adult ministry of Jesus. And uh, that's what we're going to look at this week, both of these texts. Let me pray. Father, give to each of us here now a spirit of wisdom and understanding so we can know you, trust you, serve you, yield to you, and love you more than we more than we currently do. Do this, Father, with the power that raised Christ from the dead. Amen. There's this point in Mark's Gospel that I think might be of help to many of us. Namely, why clarity about God sometimes evades us and partial clarity sometimes harms us while we can see but not see, just like we can hear but not really hear. There's sort of selective hearing in life. I shut out what I don't want to hear. There's also selective seeing. In Mark chapter 8, we're told this. Some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Now, leaving behind the whole spitting thing, gospel readers up to this point are expecting a quick and complete healing, full and immediate sight. But he looked around and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So he's got partial sight. He sees, but not clearly. They look like trees walking around. He sees something like this. The story goes on. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, in Mark's Gospel, it is both a real event and a metaphor for the disciples and their journey of understanding. They see, but they don't see. They get that he's the Messiah, the King, but they don't see clearly. They think that he'll have a political victory over the enemy, over Rome, so it's a pastoral sight. But they have yet to see clearly. That'll happen at the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. They've yet to see clearly that the Christ must suffer and must be defeated at the hands of Rome in order to secure a victory over the real enemy, which is not Rome, never was Rome, but Satan and indeed death itself. Because they have only partial sight, it's damaging. When they protest to Jesus that he doesn't have to die, you don't have to die, Jesus even says these words, these serious words, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, merely human concerns. You partially see, you've gone with human concerns. If you saw from God's perspective, everything will be different. It's that serious. In the end, they'll need God's eyes for full sight. I'm convinced 
that something that stops people from following Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind and strength is not a false understanding of Jesus so much as a partial understanding. People see only what they want to see and block the rest out. I see it all the time. They want a Jesus that only loves but doesn't judge because they're soft. Or they want Jesus that only judges and holds people to account and doesn't forgive because they're hard, burnt. Many people want hope, peace, love, but they'll get it any way they can. And if it's from Jesus, good, it'll come in general terms. But come up against a hard teaching of Jesus, a thing in the Bible you don't like or understand, something that contradicts your own beliefs, and instead of treasuring it in your heart, we learned this last week, keeping it there in faith, waiting until God makes it clear to you or God's word makes sense to you, and it might be decades, but you face God's word, you face God in faith. Instead of that, you take control of your own life and sometimes the lives of others with it. And you mould God into your own shape. You call yourself spiritual, rather religious. You edit out the bits you don't like and you keep Jesus in your own little box to be opened up from time to time. But guess what? If you come to the Bible with your own agenda, this is all you'll get, I promise you. No clarity. In our text today, the second one, Mary does something like this herself. She has a partial understanding, even if her response is understandable as a mother. Mark 3, verse 20, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. It's been happening all the way through Mark up until this point so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So the you know, mother perceives adult son going hungry. When his family includes his mother, you know that from verse 31, you also know it from Luke. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him to control the situation, for they said to themselves and maybe to others, they said, he's out of his mind. He's gone loco. They know what's up. They're going to go and knock some sense into Jesus, and they turn up to do just that. This is probably the first recorded intervention in the Bible, and I'd like to know if it's the first recorded intervention in history. Mary gets it wrong today, and that's important for us. There's only one hero in the Bible, and that is God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that's important to say because one temptation when reading the Bible is to read it as a moral book where you find moral people who are heroes of the faith doing heroic things, people whom we must emulate, sort of saints to look up to. That's a half-truth. But I think if you read the Bible as a mere moral book, then surely this leads to either pride or despair, pride that we find that we are the good people found in the pages of the Bible. That's us. Or maybe despair that we aren't. And that's more likely, I think, if you open your eyes to a burning holy God, you'll discover you aren't. But it turns out that every hero of the Bible is flawed, and it's fair to say that as you read through the Bible, every single character 
that you want to treat as a hero, every single one of them, you find a chink in their armor or a full bottoming out of their moral character. Noah, Moses, David, me, you're supposed to read yourself into it. All alike have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what about Mary? We've learned so far in our studies in Mary, three weeks ago, she simply trusted God without hardness or cynicism, and she magnified the Lord even in her lower state. We learned two weeks ago that she was the first to be told that suffering will accompany those who follow Christ. Simeon would rather have said otherwise, but a sword will pierce your own soul too, not just Christ's, yours too. And last week that she demonstrated the discipline, I believe, of treasuring something in your heart, keeping it there in faith that God will make it clear to you at a later time. You face towards God, not away from him, even as you don't understand things along the way. All of these things, good things. So is she a character to emulate? Well, yes, in many ways. But today we see the chink in Mary's armour. Two stories, two points, then something about Jesus. First, Mary almost picked the nature of the kingdom. In John 2, she leans into it. Secondly, she almost lost the essence of the kingdom in Mark 3, but she doesn't. And Jesus nails it. So firstly, Mary almost picked the nature of the kingdom. John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, is fascinating. It's doing many things. The Book of Common Prayer says that, says that Christ adorned and beautified marriage by his presence at the wedding of Cana. I think that's true. But John himself in his gospel tells us the real significance. He said what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which Christ revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. So what did Jesus do here in Cana of Galilee? Well, you know the answer. He turned water into wine. Why? Not to help a host in an embarrassing situation. It clearly is one. But rather, that it's the first of seven signs in John's Gospel, the final one being the raising of Lazarus, where everything goes quickly south, leading to the hour of his death and his glory. But what about Mary? It's hard to know what to do with Mary in John 2. It's like she picks something. She smells it. She knows something about her child and his ministry to this point. In John 2, verse 1, if you're following, they're at the wedding at Cana up north, Jesus, Jesus' mum, the disciples. They're celebrating a wedding. When the wine was gone, Mary, strangely, informs Jesus of the predicament. She says to him, maybe whispers at the table, verse 3, they have no more wine. Now, why did she say that to Jesus and not, I don't know, not someone who could fix the problem? Was it just something to talk about? <laughs> Awkward moment. You know, parents don't always have easy moments with their children. <laughs> Does she want him to go down the block to Dan Murphy's and pick up a couple of cartons? It's like she knows something about Jesus 
And it's like Jesus knows something about her too. In verse 4, he says cryptically, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. You know, it could have been, why do you involve me? I can't fix that problem. But it's not. It's, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. What is the hour? When will his hour come? And what does this hour have to do with there being no more wine at a wedding? But his mother presses in, as mothers tend to do. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Five words that are pure gold from the lips of Mary. That alone, by the way, is worth the price of entry to church today. You know, two hours ago, you're like, reading something, relaxing, do I really want to go? Let me give you something to walk away with. Mary says, do whatever Jesus tells you. Mary, in this moment, tells us how to be a disciple of Jesus. Read the Gospels, do what he tells you. In this case, it means filling six huge stone Jewish jars that are brought to him, fill them with water. They do that. Now draw some out and take it out. And right there in that moment, a miracle, water to wine, full to the brim, the best wine, and good wine. <laughs> the best wine that they've, they've tasted. And I love this little moment. You know, everybody else hoodwinks everybody at a party. They're like, when everyone's drunk, we bring up the rubbish. But you've saved the best wine to last. I think Mary's faith is coming into play here. She knows him. She knows what the angel said 30 years ago. This is the Messiah. She's been treasuring these things in her heart. She's followed the ministry of Jesus. She's watched him. I don't know if she knew what would happen, but she picks it, you know, do whatever he tells you. I think she almost picks the nature of the kingdom, namely Jesus showing the glory really of the kingdom here, that the future that God has prepared for those who love him would involve abundance, right? the glory of gorgeous wine brimming to the top, a new blessedness. You know that from the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish jars, new wine dripping from the hills as the prophet Amos foretold. But the kingdom of God does not come in this moment. People just Drink a little bit more. The kingdom of God comes at his hour. My hour has not yet come. But when it comes, you will gain abundant blessing and Mary leans into that space. We'll come back to the hour in a few moments' time. The second story is the opposite of the first. Where she almost leans in and picks the nature of the kingdom in John 2, sometime later when things hot up, when there's pressure, difficulty, a little bit of fear, nervousness, she perceives a problem. And so in Mark 3, in these 14, 15 verses, Mary almost lost the essence of the kingdom, but she doesn't. I'll tell you why in a moment. Mark's gospel, 1 through 3, begins in conflict as Jesus is increasing in popularity, the religious establishment increase in their hostility. Jesus keeps downplaying his popularity, but the religious establishment up the ante at every point. Mark 
chapter 3, verse 6, the context for our text today is important. We're told the Pharisees, hard religious right, went out to begin and began to plot with the Herodians, far left, debauched, I'm talking religiously here. They got together and plotted how they might kill Jesus. What would bring the hard left and the far right together? And the answer is a common person, common purpose, the demise of Jesus. They'll get him in the end. But instead of retreating to save his life, which, you know, most people do, pursue pleasure, avoid pain, Jesus presses on in Mark 3, climbing a mountainside like Moses, don't do that, choosing 12 disciples, problematic, all that symbolism, and the heat comes in, and the heat that comes from a system trying to protect itself, and Mary feels it, she wants her son alive, what parent doesn't, and presumably she's thinking that Jesus is making things worse. Um, you know, I knew a, a contrarian once who said, if the dogs aren't howling, you're not poking the sticks hard enough. You know, you're not rattling the cage. And Mary's like, you know what? I like my son when he was talking about hope and, you know, but now he's rattling the cage and he's making things worse. And what's more, he's not eating. And what mother doesn't care about their child eating? And so his brothers, note Jesus had brothers. They come to take charge of him, and later we learn that his mother was with them. In Luke's account, Mary's, I'm going to show it to you, Mary's presence is explicit from the beginning. The language is softened. The incident is condensed. In Mark, you've got the mother and the brothers coming to arrest Jesus, intervention. The very end of the section, you've got this... Uh, his mother outside, and it's sandwiched between uh, a conversation with the teachers of the law. We'll come to that in a moment. But in, in Luke, Luke condenses it. He says, now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to see you. And he replied, my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. This is an intervention. It's Mary above Jesus, controlling him, no longer simply treasuring these things in her heart to see what might happen later, but rather being quickened in her heart, perhaps out of fear. And so she comes with this word. He's out of his mind, says Mary. He's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. In the King James Version, he's beside himself. Even in the Greek, there's this sense of like, there's a normal person moving along whose heart and mind are aligned, but in this situation, his mind is over here, sort of mentally dislocated. So it's early sort of um, language about mental health, and Mary and his brothers are like looking at him going, something's wrong in his mind. He's out of his mind. You could even say, in the original language, he is outside of his mind. He's his clear mind, he's over here. Come take charge of him. In the end, she and the brothers, they end up on the outside of the house he's in, looking in. I think this is stressed in verses 31 and 32. You can see the play on words very clearly. They say he's outside of his mind. Jesus' mother and brothers arrive standing outside, looking in. They send someone in to call him out, bring him out. 
a crowd was sitting around him inside, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus here is saying, you can't come from the outside and place your agenda on top of me. No matter how reasonable it seems to you, it seemed reasonable to Jesus' mother and brothers, something's wrong with Jesus, gone too far, taking himself too seriously, saying things that'll get himself into trouble. You know, he's not the Messiah. Well, I mean, he's a naughty, he seems like a naughty boy, but they want to protect him, perhaps even from himself. Maybe he's taking religion too seriously. And, you know, you don't, shouldn't take religion too seriously. You hear that all the time, by the way. I hear that all the time. You know, you shouldn't take it too seriously. His parents have come to say, he's taking this too seriously. But Jesus, right here, turns the table on Mary's mindset, and we learn something about ourselves in the process. Those on the inside who are listening, learning, growing, not determining or controlling him, they are on the inside of the kingdom of God. And so he says in verse 34, he looked around at those seated at the circle around him, and said, you know, who, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now right there, Jesus changed everything in the new covenant. Family are no longer people that are simply flesh and blood, but rather those who are joined by sitting in the room with Jesus, listening and learning and growing, humbly letting him determine the path forward. But I look at this verse right here in front of you, and I think about Mary. Oh, it must have hurt. It must have hurt. Outside looking in, he doesn't come outside, and maybe the word he said on the inside trickles outside. You can imagine her thinking, I, had, I only had you in mind. I thought you might need my help. Pretty normal for a parent normal for a mum. You know, I could tell I had you pinned. I knew how to solve your problem. But she finds herself on the outside in that moment. I think she almost lost the essence of the kingdom because Jesus is the essence of the kingdom. Listening to him is what it's all about, not dictating to him what you think. This is how you see clearly. Let Christ determine the truth. Sit at his feet. Right, Martha, Martha, you are concerned and worried about many things, but Mary has chosen what is better, sitting at Jesus' feet and listening. Don't fight him, yield. Don't rely on your great reason, sit at his feet. Mary gets it, John 2. She doesn't get it, John 3, but Jesus nails it. Those who sit at my feet, they're the ones who are part of the kingdom of God. You don't teach God, God teaches you you, it turns out, are a piece of clay, and he's the potter. You're the piece of clay, he's the potter, not the other way around. One of my increasingly favorite Bible verses, Jeremiah 29, verse 16, God says to people of Israel long ago, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. How is that not Australian, Western mind? as if God were thought to be like a piece of clay that I could mould into my image, taking out the bits I don't like, including the bits I do. You think you can bring your agenda to that of Christ? 
Jesus makes this clear, and he makes it clear through the structure of verse 20 to 35. This sandwich, family teaches the law, a parable, teaches the law and families, right there in your service seat or on the screen above you. Our text today is tightly woven together and neatly organized by Mark. It starts and ends with the family. Jesus' mother and brothers have come to say he's out of his mind. They've come with their call. Jesus is not in, his, in the right headspace. And they find themselves on the outside looking in. Whoever sitting here is my mother and my brother and my sisters. But they're not excluded from the kingdom of God. All our sins and failures and flaws can be forgiven. Mary finds herself at the foot of the cross and included in the ministry of Jesus. We'll find that out next week. But sandwiched between this parental incident are the teachers of the law whose judgment is far more drastic, far more aggressive, far more exclusory. In verse 22, they say, he's possessed by the prince of demons. He's driving out the demons, which has been happening previously in Mark's gospel. And Jesus effectively says, to say that, to treat the work of God, the Holy Spirit, blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to treat the work of God as the work of the devil, to say, I am opposed because this is all wrong. Unforgivable, he says. He says in verse 28, follow it in your Bibles, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and indeed every slander they utter. He said to me, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the, 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 the bottom that I've, I've found in my life. I'm telling you right now, from the lips of Jesus, therefore I'm speaking to you now, by the power of the Spirit, all sins, all slanders that you utter can be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven they are guilty of an eternal sin. While ever they are in that state, they are eternally unforgivable. And verse 30 he said this for the very reason that they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now, there are sensitive people who worry about committing such a sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You think, oh, did I do this or did I do that? I promise you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Now, the sin, the unforgivable one, is to say or to continue to say, Jesus, you're, you are from hell. I'm over you. This, he says, is unforgivable to exclude Jesus Christ from your life. Since the one place to receive forgiveness is to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Saviour, as opposed to, Jesus, you are demonic. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then, is to reject Jesus Christ. That is the thing that God is doing in the world. Tom Wright often makes these things clear. He said, it isn't that God gets specially angry with one sin in particular, something called the unforgivable sin. It is rather that if you decide firmly that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, you'll never give your consent to the operation. If you say to yourself, Christ is demonic, then you remain in a place where you are unforgiven. By the way, that can be forgiven the moment you turn to Christ. 
But then he makes a very simple point right in the middle of our text today, in the middle of the sandwich. He has this parable about a stronger, a strong man and one who's stronger than a strong man. And he says only the stronger man can plunder the stronger man's home. Who's the strong man? It's Satan. And the teachers of the law have said it's by Beelzebub, by Satan, that he is driving out demons. And Jesus says, I can't be driving out demons with demonic power. If that were the case, then Satan is divided against himself. Verse 25, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. Oh, by the way, Abraham Lincoln wasn't the first to say that, despite what the internets say. Jesus then says, if you enter a strong man's house, you'd better be stronger. You have to tie up the strong one in order to plunder his house. And Jesus is effectively saying, I am the one who can tie up the one you think is strong. I'm the stronger man, stronger than the strong man. With clear references to Isaiah 49, verses 24 and 25, Jesus nails it. I am the stronger man, stronger than all evil in the world, stronger than Satan, stronger than sin, stronger than death itself, and I have come to take out the presence of evil in the world. I've come to take out sin and Satan and death. Back to John 2. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus said to Mary in John 2, my hour has not yet come. On the eve of his death, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the moment on the cross where the stronger man ties up the strong man. Jesus takes on death and swallows it whole. He goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world with him. He nails it. So will you nail it, get it right? Mary, it turns out, is very human. She's a mum. She was not immaculately conceived herself. She is not co-redemptive co-redemptrix, the queen of heaven, and only the Son and the Spirit in the New Testament intercede for us with the Father on our behalf. She, like all of us, gets it wrong. She sees, but in that moment, not clearly. In the end, she does see, unlike the teachers of the law, for in her frailty she faced Christ. She trusted in her Son, the Saviour of the world. A sword pierced her soul on the cross. We'll learn that next week. But Christ was nailed to the cross so that you and I could be forgiven our many sins and failures and slanders and then have full sight in the knowledge and love of God. Let's pray. Father, some of us can, can see what it is that we're doing. We come with our own agendas, our own reason, our own, our own clarity or sense of clarity about our, ourselves and our lives and about you. And then you read the life of Jesus or you read things in the Bible and, and, and you, you want to edit it out and you want to say, you want to take charge and you want to say that maybe, the, maybe, maybe you're out of your mind and I'm thinking clearly, but... What a gift in this moment to recognise that we've come with that agenda in our mind so that we can perhaps even in this moment say yes to Jesus Christ, yes to entering a room with him and sitting at his feet and letting him determine the agenda, letting him decide which way is up 
which way is down, what I need to do. Father, in this moment, even as our, in our seats, we pray that we might hear his voice instead of an imposition, pride. What we ask for is clarity through humility. Show us, for Jesus' sake. Amen.